Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored once again by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. As I've said so many times, the Business Creators Radio Show goes where you go to have those mastermind moments and aha experiences that bring you closer to your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. These things tend not to happen in our homes, offices, our home offices. We need to get out there and find it. And where do you find it? A coffee shop, a cigar lounge, an outdoor cafe, a park, while driving. You may hear a bird chirping, a car driving by. In the case of today, probably a little bit of ambient noise in the background and somebody's cell phone that sounds like Rise of the Valkyries whenever it rings. So what we're going to do is we're going to have that type of environment. I'm in a remote location, and today's guest I is wherever he is. One of the beauties of podcasting is that you get to take it with you and bring it where you're going. Topic of today's interview, the title, it's called Leader by Accident, and it's the title of a book, Leader by Accident, Lessons in Leadership, Loss, and Life. We are so excited. This is somebody I've been looking to have on this show for a while now, and I'm so glad that our schedule's finally aligned. We have the author. His name is Jim Rafferty. I just told you he's the author of Leader by Accident. He's the principal of JM Marketing, J Marketing, that's spelled J-M-R-K-E-T-I-N-G, using it as initials, LLC, which is a marketing and communications consultancy in Baltimore, Maryland, a city I've visited so many times, and a former radio announcer and program director, when you hear his voice, that is going to carry through. One of the things that struck me about Jim while he and I were chatting in the green room is how polished he is. It's going to feel like you're listening to the news, and believe me, he has news for you. But first, let's get him on. Jim Rafferty, come on in. The weather's fine. Well, that's a lot to live up to. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Speaking of... Yeah. Speaking the, of the weather up, is fine. It's about 100 degrees here in Baltimore today or 95 or something. Yeah, it's hot. 117 in Las Vegas. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Re- the, reason, the reason I'm at a remote, remote location is that uh, it's as I don't want to be indoors. It's actually too hot to be outside. And our damn swimming pool is still down. So oh. I had to do something. Now, yeah. before we dive in, before we dive in, What I want you to do, I read off your official bio, even though it's very concise, it's so impressive that it leaves me feeling like I may not be worthy to be here. And this is my show. (laughs) Tell us a bit in your own words about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. What's brought me here today, and really there's a reason, the reason there's a book called Leader by Accident, Adam, is uh, really two pretty giant steps outside of my comfort zone. The the book begins, and really my story for our purposes begins in 2008 when a local attorney here in Baltimore and his wife and their two younger sons were all shot to death by their oldest son, who was then 15 years old. Uh-huh. And as, as awful as that sounds, it was, it was worse. Um, and, you know, that was an event that had huge repercussions throughout our community, but, and, you know, in, in the grand scope of all that, really my part of it is hardly worth talking about, but it changed things for me because the, the dad, a fellow named John Browning was the scoutmaster of our son's boy scout troop. And a couple of days later, I was the new scoutmaster of the troop, despite having really zero in the way of scouting experience, camping experience. You know, I myself had been a Boy Scout for just a couple of weeks as a kid. I really didn't like it. So they really chose 
probably the most unqualified person out of out of all the options to step into that role. And for some reason, they asked. And for some reason, I said yes. And that was really life changing. I mean, the experiences of those next five years in that role pushed me out of my comfort zone, both in terms of, you know, leadership in, in trying to shepherd a group through an exceptionally difficult time and in very physical ways too, with all the things that you do in scouting and camping and hiking and kayaking and canoeing in all types of weather and, and, and so on and so forth. So that's, that's sort of step one of, of the story. Part one of the story is that step out of the comfort zone. A, a few years later, I was, pretty suddenly shown the door at the uh, job I'd held for almost 21 years as the marketing director for um, a fairly sizable home improvement company here in Baltimore. And I started to look for another job because it really had never occurred to me to do anything else. I'd never had any visions of being an entrepreneur or doing my own thing. I just always thought somebody would hand me a paycheck for, for doing what I do. And the the issue with that strategy, it turned out, was that there was not a whole lot of demand at that point for a 51-year-old self-taught marketer. So I wound up uh, stepping off the ledge into entrepreneurship, hanging out my shingle, and it was the best thing I've ever done professionally by far. I mean, you know, we talk about success and there's different ways to measure success, right? Some of us like to look at the numbers in the bank account. Some of us like to know that we have schedule flexibility or that we're doing work we love or, you know, any number of things. And it really has checked all the boxes. And that uh, next month will be 10 years uh, that, I, that I've been doing this and had JM Marketing as a consultancy. And then last year, I put it all together into this book called Leader by Accident. So it's really a, a two-part story of stepping out of my comfort zone into two very different situations. But it was the first one that that step into the, the scouting role that really gave me the courage to do the second one. Wow. See, in my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. I cover the importance of investing in the silver lining of the cloud because it's a precious metal. It's yes. Sometimes, I mean, Think about, I'll use the analogy of a basketball. What makes a basketball bounce beyond the fact that it's inflated? Or it's rubber. It's When it, it, hits, it, has, the, when it hits the floor. Right. It, it, it rebounds, it, it, it compresses, and it springs back. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I think about when I catch this whole notion of what do we do when things seem to go absolutely wrong? And yours is, you are not the first entrepreneur I know. In fact, you're not the only entrepreneur I know named Jim who <laughs> found himself in a very similar situation. Your story reminds me a bit of one of my own mentors, Jim Palmer, the dream business coach, who's been mm -hmm. my business coach for almost 15 years now. <coughs> in his story, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, um, has a similar thing that happened to it. It was right after 9-11. He was on a career fast track as a marketing executive. He was uh, middle management moving towards senior management. 9-11 hit. And the company was no longer able to fund that position, so he lost position. Then if, I think it was a few months later, he found out he had cancer. Mm. So what do you do when you have four teenagers in the house and you can't find a job because there's no demand for a mid-level marketing manager who's uh, middle-aged? Because candidly, that does play a role. It does. And you are dealing with a potentially terminal illness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and that's a guy who not only rebounded, that experienced success and has got the chance to enjoy some of his dreams to a level that many folks can never even fathom. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a wonderful story. And, and I love your basketball analogy because you know, we all hit the pavement and sometimes we don't always remember to, you know, to bounce back. We forget the second half and we stay down there and, and it, it can be difficult to overcome those kinds of things. And I mean, even setting the illness aside, that's, you know, that's, you know, just adding a whole new dimension to the thing. And I, and I have had my health issues, but fortunately not at the same time that I was, you know, trying to figure out where my life and my career were going. But, 
you know, in terms of being at that stage in your life, yeah, when, when all that happened and I found myself out of work, I mean, our, our son, the Boy Scout by then was a year away from going to college and Ooh. we didn't know where he was going to go yet, but we were pretty sure it would be expensive. And, you know, I had always been the main breadwinner. My wife worked a few part-time jobs and tutored in the house and that kind of thing, but I was the provider of health care and most of our income. And then, you know, behind our three years behind our son was our daughter also, you know, going to be going to college. And we really didn't know what was next. And, you know, we found some private health coverage that uh, this is about a year before Obamacare kicked in. So that the the coverage we found was affordable enough, but excluded my wife because of a pre-existing condition. And, yeah, you know, it was uh, it was a pretty bleak summer in the Rafferty household. I will tell you that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember that era before um, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, or whether you want to call it by its official name or by the guy who uh, allegedly created, although I think it was more of a group effort uh, that actually was based off something developed by Republicans. I love this whole thing where you study history and you find out that things are not exactly how they're presented to you. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. This thing we call Obamacare was basically a version of Romney care. Mm-hmm. that's yep. one of the things that I love in my journey of self-exploration. And you get some of that by following a very simple business principle that has been shared by so many. Uh, one version of it that I know of is called the five whys. You just ask why five times and you will discover the roots of things that you did not even know were in the ground. But to me, yes. that's also an apt metaphor for how you achieve the ability to be resilient and to be a leader. Because yes. one of the things about being in a leadership position, whether you're a corporate executive, whether you're a team leader, whether you're an entrepreneur, people will give you information. They'll report to you. They'll share data. And even those who are well-intentioned, will share the information and data that best benefits them in a way to persuade you to their point of view without realizing you're being persuaded. True. So you got to dig a little bit deeper. So what I'd like to do first off is now let's get into some of the stuff that you shared in the green room that you want to make sure that our listeners get. One of the things I really seized upon, I thought was very interesting is uh, a couple of the tidbits you gave me. And I'll share this with some of our listeners as somebody who found yourself being a leader by accident, what advice do you have for new leaders or someone in an unexpected leadership role? You know, the first part I think comes back to really what you just said about resilience, you know, the, the earlier part of this conversation, resilience for the group was what we needed at this point. You know, we, we had a lot of healing to do. Everybody in that troop had lost two or three close friends, plus their beloved scoutmaster. We're talking about a group of 25 young men. It's not, not a big, big group. And we didn't know if the troop would survive. Yeah. And so I stepped into this situation with a, a lot of help. Let me, you know, make that clear too. If you assistant scoutmasters who were much more qualified than I was to sort of do some of the heavy lifting while I felt my way around, but I, I think the thing ultimately that made it work, a few things. One, I was very candid with both scouts and their parents about my lack of experience. I did not try to pretend I was something I was not or, or hide the fact that, you know, I did not know a lot about the scouting program. So that that I think that transparency was a good thing. Two, we did not hide from the tragedy that had happened. We talked about it and we faced it head on and we had regular discussions in our meetings as the the case worked its way through the courts and was in the news and that kind of thing we we addressed it as a group and were there for each other and and i think that was an important component also and three something you know i'd advise for any leader if it's in your wheelhouse is you know i sort of managed to it it was a dark time there especially in the early going but i I try to always have a sense of humor about what i do and and to direct it at myself whenever possible and if that's something that's in your toolkit i think that's really valuable as a leader you you had a recent episode with um shelby and christina talking about using comedy in in business Oh, I I, I love that episode. Yes. Right. And so, so, so so did you catch the part about how my biggest gripe about moving from DVDs to streaming services, we miss out on the blooper reels and the deleted scenes now? 
Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, and, you know, I think like the internet has also killed the joke, you know, when, when we were younger, yeah. you know, there, you would tell a long form joke and it would take a couple of minutes to tell. And now, you know, it's all still very funny, but that, that's sort of gone by the boards, but yeah, things change and things move forward. But, but again, you know, if, if a sense of humor is part of who you are, then make it part of who you are as a leader is my advice. Yeah. And I think, and I think that bringing up the blooper reels and the deleted scenes is also very critical when you think about something that's pretty surface level when it comes to leadership. And particularly when you're in a, in an unexpected leadership role is you're very quickly going to have a lot of footage. You don't want to include in a finished product. Yes. You're going to have some bloopers and some of them aren't going to be that funny. 100%. And if you can laugh at them, then, you know, so much the better. Yeah. I, and, you know, the, the flip side of that, of being an inexperienced leader, I think, you know, for me with the scouts and maybe in a lot of other situations is it will tend to give you a measure of empathy that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. You know, a lot of times when we were doing whatever we were doing, you know, stepping into that wobbly canoe and not knowing what was downstream. Well, you know, that was my first time as well as theirs. And and that will give you a a, a little bit of bonding with the people you're leading in, in, in a way that you don't get if you're, if you're much more experienced than they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very true. So candor, transparency, and even a bit of humility, I think go a very, very long way. Yeah. And that empathy uh, is so important. I think, you know, this has become so relevant now here in the age of the the great resignation. You know, I just saw, you know, I, I'm always for, forever looking at news reports about this stuff to, to post things on behalf of marketing clients. And I just saw one thing that said something like 70% of employees, you know, in 2022 are at least thinking about, you know, moving on. Right. And, and if you abide by that, my, one of my favorite business sayings, right. People join companies and they quit bosses. Well, that puts a little pressure on you as a leader to not be the reason that they're going to become part of the great resignation, you know, and it, it does call for an extra measure of empathy. And we've seen that through this whole pandemic and lockdown and everything where, all of a sudden, you not only had to manage your people, but you had to manage them in a way that allowed for the fact that they were maybe homeschooling their kids and trying to figure out what to do with them during business hours and, and stuck at home and trying to be dealing with pet care and you know and aging relatives who they couldn't see and all this stuff that all of a sudden just came out of nowhere for all of us. That called for a lot of empathy as a leader in a situation where in many cases you couldn't be in person to to pick up on the nonverbals, you know, the things that you don't get over Zoom. And I, I think that situation in a slightly different way now here has continued where we really need to be sensitive to the the people who are reporting to us and, and what they need beyond their their day to day duties in the office or the workplace. Yeah, I'd like to bring up a point. It's a little bit off subject, but I think it's very important. You mentioned that um, trying to relate to people over Zoom. Now, I believe that um, that Zoom has not only uh, been a detriment to communication. I believe in some ways it's destroyed certain elements of communication. Let's look at this from a visual and kinesthetic point of view. Uh, let's say that this is audio only, but let's say that you and I were recording this on video. So I'd be on Zoom over here. You'd be on Zoom over there. Yep. We would be sitting upright, facing each other directly, uh, trying to look into our webcam. So it looked like we were looking each other in the eye. Right. And all we would see of each other is our head and our squared shoulders staring mm-hmm. directly at us. Yeah. It is not normal to sit with that posture and face another person for an extended period of time. Yeah. 100% true. Mm -hmm. Unless you're having something that is by definition an uncomfortable conversation. Yes. Yeah. Right now um, I'm in one of my remote locations, which happens to be a cigar shop. So let's say, um, I don't know if you're a cigar aficionado yourself, but either way, um, and if you're not, let's just say coffee shop. Cigar shop is fine. Okay, very good. So we would be sitting next to each other in one of these uh, big, beautiful stuffed uh, leather chairs. Mm -hmm. But we wouldn't be facing directly each other. In fact, we might be sitting side by side, occasionally looking to each other. Now, we'd be scanning the room. We might have 
pauses in the conversation, which would be perfectly normal. We may every 15 minutes, like basically on sync, just pick up our phones and scan real quick before we return to our conversation. Because regardless of anybody's belief in whether looking at your phone while you're with somebody is quote unquote polite or not, it's part of the human condition now. So we're it a little is. bit beyond mismanners. Yeah, um, it is. So effective, so effective conversations allow for little breaks and conversations have pauses anyway. And let's say that uh, you asked me a provocative question or something I didn't immediately know the answer to or something where I really wanted to think about it for a minute. What would I do? You would probably notice that I'd sit back in my chair a little bit. I'd either cross or uncross my legs. Whichever one it was, it'd be the opposite. Yep. I might sort of look up at the ceiling. I may steeple my hands and put my fingers together. You and take a draw saw- on that cigar. Yep. And when you saw that, you would actually relax. Mm-hmm. Because I would be signaling to you using nonverbals, uh, Jim, I'm there for you. Just I give me a sec. But when you try and have that conversation over Zoom, and there's even two seconds of sounds like uh, "Hello, hello, are we connected?" And if one of us looks away, it's like, um, "Can you focus on the conversation?" Yeah, that's why I think that Zoom has caused such an issue. So why is the business creators radio show audio only? The biggest reason is I just don't feel like doing a video component. I just don't want to. But the larger reason, aside from the fact that it allows me to go into the field and do these episodes from anywhere, and um, you know, I don't mind the, you know, a little bit of ambient noise here and there. You probably heard a vacuum cleaner running about 10 minutes ago because <laughs> um, I think somebody spilled a match or something. That happens sometimes. And um, what you saw... I mean, what, what we see here is I have the ability to sit back, um, have a comfortable posture, relax. And when you say something that really energizes me, actually stand up, walk around and do the raise the roof gesture. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and, be, so- and because, because I took the video out of it, I believe it leads to more effective and interesting conversations. I've had, I've had debates on this, but that's my view. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's points to be made on both sides. Zoom is a great convenience in certain circumstances. You know, it, it certainly kept a lot of us in business in various ways when we couldn't leave our homes. Sure. No, no doubt about it. Uh, but as, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, right, you lose the nonverbals because you and I would be sitting there. And even if our arms never left those overstuffed chairs, right, if, if we're yep. rested, we'd still be moving our hands and gesturing. And like you say, we'd, you'd ask a question and I might look away and stare at the ceiling for a second, you know, and, and, you know, all those things that you, you try not to do in the context of Zoom. Zoom will save a lot of gasoline, you know, sales reps who maybe don't need to see clients in person as often as they do, but it's also going to be overused and they're going to lose clients because other people are showing up in person and, and, and having a better relationship because of it. And for me, you know, so in my book, I mentioned these monthly business peer group meetings that I've been a part of really for just about the whole 10 years here. And I, I belong to one group, I facilitate another group. And that was a real thing to manage in the, you know, in the lockdown. So of course we did them all by zoom and that was okay. And then as things came back, you know, and then went away again and came back and went away again, we'd start Uh to gather in person. And I'll tell you what, everybody in the room is great. Everybody on Zoom is okay. Roughly half and half, you know, half on the screen, half around the table is manageable. But like eight people around the table and two on the screen, those two on the screen are just forgotten souls. It's it's very hard to compete with what's going on in the room. All the stuff you just talked about with people looking around and having nonverbals and moving their hands and you know, and, and having a conversation that doesn't have to allow for, for lag time or talking over one another, all the things we try not to do on zoom. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I could not agree more, especially with the point you just mentioned this, where if you have the majority of the people physically with you and you have one or two remoting in, yeah, you're right. They do kind of get lost. Um, I have uh, you know, one of my clients last year did an in-person seminar in San Diego. Uh, there were 40 seats available in the room because uh, at the time there were still certain limitations on how many people we had in the room. So he had to put a hard limit on 40. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a combination of he hadn't done a seminar in three years. His audience was pretty much jonesing at this point for some sort of in-person experience instead of yet another virtual seminar. And here he was offering it in 
his target geographic region, which is Southern California. So those 40 seats went pretty quick. Oh, yeah. And then you had people who wanted to attend who were in Canada, and you still couldn't cross the border at that time. You had oh, people who were in Mexico who also couldn't cross the border due to uh, various restrictions and anomalies of the Covidian era. And then you had folks that just didn't want to travel, who actually liked the idea of being remote or just didn't want to get on an airplane and have to sit there wearing one of those mask things for like five hours. Yeah. And mm-hmm. have to show up four hours early for TSA instead of two. So we did make a decision early on that it was going to be a hybrid. And we also set a benchmark that at least 10 people had to sign up for the remote version, or we were just going to refund the people who were going to be virtual and cancel it. Had to be at least 10 because we recognized that even though they would be watching through a webcam, everything that was happening in the seminar room, because they had a chat room that the people in the room in the physical room didn't, and they had a different view than the people in the physical room, they were going to form their own ecosystem. We needed at least 10 people for that to be viable. We got 18. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, and I was responsible for managing that and creating the coordination and the links between what was going on in the room, what was going on in the virtual. And there are ways of making everybody feel like they're a part of it, but it does require a lot of uh, on-the-scene management and real-time adjustment. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it's going to be an ongoing challenge. I mean, it's not going away. We're going to continue to do things virtually and hybrid and and all of that. And the technology will probably get a little better. I don't know that it will replace them, you know, until they turn us all into holograms or something. It's not (laughs) going to replace being in person. Yeah. So what I want to do is I want to move on now to organizational culture. And I know you have a section in your book that takes a somewhat different angle on that. So if you could take us and give us some detail on that, that would be awesome. Yeah, that whole part grows out of a a pretty simple story where uh, one of my scouts and I were getting ready for a meeting, like setting up folding chairs or something mundane like that. And it was the fall of his junior year of high school. And And I knew, you know, where he was in school and roughly and all that. And I, so I just asked him, you know, making conversation, if he'd started to uh, think about college majors, you know, that kind of thing, what, what direction he wanted to go. And he mentioned a few possibilities and he said, Mr. Rafferty, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know what, what interests you, what do you like to do? And we talked a few more minutes about that. And honestly, I forgot the conversation had ever happened because it was, you know, small talk, chit chat. But about a year and a half later, when this young man uh, reached the rank of Eagle Scout, he sent me a handwritten thank you note, um, which was very nice. And in that note, he recalled that conversation that I had forgotten. And he said that was the first time in his life that anyone had ever asked him what he wanted to do with his life. Now, mind you, he was 15 or 16 years old at that point. And that was just jaw dropping to me, you know, that what I thought was, like I said, small talk, right? A throwaway question, six words. What do you like to do was really taken in a much more impactful way than I had intended. And there are a couple of other similar stories in the book, but the point is that the language that we use as leaders has such an impact on organizational culture. And I have, I have a little passage in the book from, Tom Peters, you know, in search of excellence, actually it's from uh, a follow-up book called the excellence dividend. And I'll, I'll paraphrase here, but he, he basically says organizational culture is shaped by, and he goes down the list, the way the boss greets the receptionist as she walks in the door in the morning, organizational culture is shaped by the casual comments. The boss makes to the people between the front door and getting to her office. Organizational culture is shaped by the tone and quality of the emails that the boss responds to in the first 15 minutes of her workday. In other words, organizational culture is very heavily influenced by the language we use. And the pitfall for us there, I think, is we have so many ways to communicate now, and so many of them involve typing, right? You know, we're, we're texting, we're IMing, we're using Slack or whatever. And it's so easy for what, what Tom Peters calls the tone of our intent to get lost in that. And, and when that happens, you know, you're, you're liable to wind up with someone who's 
got their nose out of joint and you as the boss are going to be likely the last one to know about it. And, and that's a problem, especially, you know, I wrote this well before the pandemic and well before the great resignation, but boy, it, it's really, you know, I think maybe more relevant than ever now, you know, in my case, in that story and another story I tell in the book about, you know, just, you know, a, a very short comment having a, a big impact. Both of those were good things, but it's very easily very easy for it to go the other way and to go south and and to turn into something we didn't intend. And I think that's something that as leaders, we need to be very mindful of the the language that we use. And sometimes you say things that are very well-meaning. I'm going to go back 20 years when I worked for a company. And my first job there, I was classified as an administrative assistant. My actual job duties were not exactly typing and answering phones, but that's where they had to fit me within the range of titles available. So I became part of the administrative staff of which there were about 15. And as a leader, you know that there is a holiday. I think it's sometime in the spring. I can't remember the exact date called Administrative Professionals Day. Yes. Well, in my, in my last few months here, before I got diagonally promoted in the company, uh, they did a big luncheon for all the administrative staff. Major, major big deal. Um, even held it in the executive boardroom, which was normally used only for the actual board of directors and the weekly upper level management meetings. That, and that's the only thing it was ever used for. It could not be borrowed for a team meeting or anything like that. So it was catered. Man, I tell you, it was done to the nines. And surprise, the CEO walked in. Now, regardless of what you think about your CEO, isn't it cool when he walks in the room or she walks in the room? Sure. Even if you don't like the person, it's like, <laughs> wow, power came to me. So, yes, he, absolutely. So, so, so he fixes himself a plate. He has himself a little lunch. He sits down and then, um, you know, he raises his hands, you know, does the old, uh, hey, I got a few words to say here gesture. Everybody quiets up and he expresses some really nice words of appreciation. And then he goes off on a tangent saying, you know, um, it's, it, you know, and those of us who are senior management over there in the corner, you know, we're aware that uh, sometimes you'll see us in the hallway and you'll say hi to us and we'll walk by like we don't even see you. And it's not because we don't care. It's just because we're really busy trying to run the company. Ooh. Now he was at Nessie. You got it. What he, was, what, he was, what he was trying to say is look beyond the surface visual and understand we're actually fighting for you here to make this a great company. That was, that was his intent. I know that in his heart. That's what he meant. Yes. Yeah. But after he said those words, you saw the, you know, the hyper energy in that room just go flat. Mm. And within less than a minute, people were wrapping it up, starting to migrate back to their desks, uh, deciding they were going to use the rest of the hour for personal reasons and things like that. And within five minutes, that room was empty. Wow. Wow. And the, and the thing is, I, I know, I know, cause I, I, I could read what he was trying to say that he was actually trying to be value adding and show that as an, as an expression of support, but yeah, he could have yeah. just, he could have just stopped at that point before he so, said that. And, and it would have been, he would have been a smash hit. At, at the other end of that spectrum, there's, a, again, a story in Leader by Accident uh, having to do with my, my very first job in radio when I was in college in Ithaca, New York. And it's, it's, it would take 10 minutes to tell the story, so I won't. But it's very entertaining. I mean, you should go read it. And anyway, I did something on the air accidentally that was, you know, uh, worthy of termination. I mean, I, you know, I was fully expecting that when I finished that shift, I would walk out in the hall and somebody would fire me. Yeah. And I walked out into the hall and found the general manager of the radio station there. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, I'm sorry that happened to you. I know you didn't do it on purpose. Have a great summer. We'll see you back here next year. You know, when you come back in the fall and, and all of that. And I, I mean, obviously that stayed with me a long time, but, you know, of all the things he could have done, you know, from firing me to, you know, reaming me out completely to any number, you know, I'll, I'll think about whether you have a job or not. Come on back in the fall and we'll talk. He did none of those things. He went straight to forgiveness and that stuck with me. And that's why I've always tried to do that in the situations when I've been leading people. I can't say I've always succeeded, 
but I've always tried. And, you know, we, we, we spend so much time and effort and money chasing this thing that we call organizational culture. And, you know, it's, it's first cousin employee engagement and, you know, how much more likely, let me flip it the other way. How much less likely will your team be to, you know, join the great resignation if they perceive that your culture is one where the default is forgiveness, you know? Now, if, if somebody's been told to do something a certain way or not to do something five times and it happens a sixth time, that, that's a different conversation. You know, but yeah. the, the, the point is that sometimes a mistake is just a mistake. And sometimes as the boss, we're tempted to really come down like a ton of bricks on people. And when we don't, it can really make a lasting difference in, in the way we're perceived. Oh, you mean over something really minor where you have meetings to discuss the meetings, where you're going to plan the meetings to have the meetings yes. about uh, about the big changes and the corrective actions that need to be put into place, plus the complete overhaul of the entire corporation, its culture, and possibly its organizational chart because uh, somebody didn't put the people in the CC line in the correct order. Right. Yeah. They don't yeah. like it when you show up to those meetings in a t-shirt that says, I survived another meeting that should have been an email. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now let's, let's get back to comfort zones. Uh, I know that's actually, I mean, for looking at this from an NLP perspective, I picked that up as one of your transports comfort zone. Uh, yeah. and there's plenty of advice out there about getting out of it. You've shared some with us and you may have some more for us in the next 20 minutes or so, but overall, and the advice you see out there about getting out of your comfort zone, what do you say is missing from that advice? Yeah, I think, you know, as we covered at the beginning, the, the whole reason you and I are talking today, the reason there's a book, the reason I'm an entrepreneur is because I stepped out of my comfort zone twice in, in what were for me pretty big ways. And so I'm very much an advocate of, that of the life-changing things that can happen when we do the thing that we're scared to do. And it doesn't mean that we have to live outside of our comfort zone. I'm as, I'm as big a homebody creature of routine as you'll find, but yeah, we, we need to grow. We need to change, you know, talk about the, uh, the, the wise preacher who says, you know, God loves you just the way you are. And he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Right. We, we need to grow uh -huh. and that's how we do it. But the part I think we miss is having done the thing, whatever it is that, you know, that challenged us, that scared us. I think we fail a lot of time to take them, take a moment to a, give ourselves a little pat on the back, right. For trying, even if it didn't work out as we'd hoped and B to reflect on what happened, you know, what went right and what went wrong, what we would do differently next time. And, you know, our lives these days, with our, you know, little electronic leashes in our pockets, right? Our cell phones chiming and buzzing and dinging all day, demanding our attention from a hundred different directions. We're busy and we have these to-do lists and we've got jobs and families and all this stuff going on. And what gets lost is the time for reflection. And the point I make in, in my specific case is I did not wake up in September of 2012 one morning and say, Hey, you know what? I hiked down to the bottom of the grand Canyon and back out. Therefore I'm going to go start my own business. It doesn't work that way. You know, the, no, the reflection, really. right. The reflection came much later. And when you think back and you go, wow, I started my own business and it is working. Whatever gave me the guts to do that in the first place. And that's when the dots get connected. And that's when I think we really learn more about ourselves and where we've been. And that helps inform where we're going. You know, I, I'm well familiar with that saying that, uh, you know, the, the, the windshield is so much bigger than the rear view mirror because we need to be looking ahead and not back. And okay. There's some truth in that I'll, I'll admit, but, that rearview mirror has some lessons to teach us if we'll let it. And that is the thing I think we miss the most when we talk about, you know, leaving our comfort zone and challenging ourselves. Yeah. Um, my trajectory to entrepreneurship is uh, I completed my MBA in 2002 with a concentration in human resource management for two years uh, while I had that, while I was pursuing the MBA full time, I was also working full time in that administrative position administrative position I mentioned earlier. And part of my role was logistically coordinating training events, both for employees and for um, clients in the company. And further, and, and I'd also gotten involved actually in some of the curriculum design. So it was actually great experience for what my career goal was at the time to get myself on the path to becoming a training and development director for a Fortune 100. 
So I did the post MBA thing. I did the interviews, the networking, and what have you. I got two job offers. They were from uh, one was a small company, one was what we would call a mid-sized company. In both cases, they weren't officially hiring, but I had contacted them because I was calling companies in a specific geographic area I was considering moving to, and they liked what I had to say. They liked my ideas, and they were going to create positions for me. I turned them both down. Wow. What happened? While that process was happening is I connected with a previous mentor of mine who at that point in his trajectory owned a small training and development firm. And he had plenty of work available, uh, which included uh, helping him with research for his book, helping him collate data for his uh, training presentations, helping him not only just format, but actually design some of the content of his handouts and worksheets. Uh, also, he had like 500 books um, at the level of leader by accident that he didn't have time to read. So he paid me to read the books and write them summaries. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, so, get, so getting paid to keep the OMBA education going a little bit longer. And this was just a side hustle, but it gave me the entrepreneurial bug. So I formed a limited liability company around it. And uh, for two years, I sat at that same company where I got diagonally promoted twice in two different directions and was back and forth on, am I going to go entrepreneur or am I going to uh, become a corporate hustler? Well, um, in November, 2004, I had, uh, I had a really bad day at the job and I found out some uh, just, just the way that my boss's bosses handled the whole situation answered the question for me, if you know what I mean. Yes. Now I still sat there for eight months and here's the reason why. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know what questions to ask and I didn't know that the questions existed. And here's the evidence. I told my client slash mentor about the situation and he told me that this, this happened on a Friday. I spoke with him Friday evening and he said, here's the deal. Uh, go into work on Monday Hand them your notice effective immediately. Send me documentation that you no longer work there, and I will wire you $3,000. Wow. I turned them down, and here's <laughs> why. I didn't understand two things. A, I didn't know that combined with my PTO payout plus my savings plus the fact that, um, and I was 27 at the time. I hadn't moved out of my parents' house yet. And the only reason I stayed there mainly was because I was building this business and I preferred to reinvest and pay rent. And plus between full-time job and, and uh, fast-paced side hustle, I didn't want to have to take care of a place. Sure. So they didn't mind me staying there uh, because they never saw me anyway. Uh, <laughs> so uh, so um, I had that going for me. My car was paid off. My credit card balances were zero. And boy, I haven't seen those times in a long time. But uh, yeah, right. uh, yeah. uh, but, what I did, but what I failed to recognize is that combined with all of those savings and my expected PTO payout, which would have amounted to two months of my salary, plus uh, I had already found out that I could get individual health insurance. It would be good enough to get me by for a year or two. I didn't know that with, with $3,000, that would be more than enough to put me on a path where being in the venture full-time, I could use that in combination with my time and my efforts to build a sustainable business within two months. I did not know that existed. I also, yeah. didn't, I also didn't understand when he told me that it wasn't a loan and he didn't want anything back from me. He was just going to give me the money. I'm thinking, okay, there's a catch here because I, you know, mm. I still had that poverty mindset and I still had the uh, good things don't happen to normal people and stuff like that stuff, you know, that junk that we're told as children. Yeah. His, he had a very selfish reason for him to give me $3,000. His company was growing and he needed more help and he wanted me to be that more help. So by him giving me the $3,000, he could get me out of that job. And uh, he and I could do a lot more stuff together, which means right away, he would have been paying me a bit more and just working more closely with him would have put me in touch with opportunities to get more clients. I didn't see that. And I didn't recognize that his selfish motives were actually altruistic for both of us. I couldn't see it because I didn't have the frame of reference. So right. 
there was a possibility to get out of my comfort zone. I didn't even know it was there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, we find the opportunities in the most unexpected places, you know, one of the sort of the, the structure of leader by accident is, you know, there's a part of scouting that's called the Scoutmaster minute, which essentially is a little mini homily that the Scoutmaster delivers at the end of each weekly meeting designed yep. to send the boys out the door with a positive thought of some kind. Right. And yeah. When I took over as Scoutmaster, I thought, well, that I can do. I may not know much about camping or how to find a North star or start a fire without matches or, or that stuff, but I, I can hold the attention of a, a group, even if they are teenagers. <laughs> so I worked hard on those and, and I, I kept an archive of those as I went through the years as Scoutmaster, And I used them throughout the book to sort of tee up the next chapter and take whatever the lesson is I was trying to teach to the scouts and, and convert it into something meaningful for, for you and me, you know, entrepreneurs or parents or people just, you know, finding our way through life. And one of them is about recalculating, like when, you know, the Jeep, when we do something, the GPS didn't expect us to do it. That has to stop and think about it for a minute. It says recalculating. And I said, you know, guys, stuff is going to happen to you because these are, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds who really haven't experienced failure yet. Right. They, they yeah. tended to be good athletes, good students or good musicians or some combination thereof. And I said, you know what? you're not going to get into a college you want to go to, or you're not going to get the date, the girl you want to date or something, you know, you're going to lose a job. I, I remember telling them in the course of this particular talk, I said, I've been fired twice. And they were like shocked, you know, well, I was in radio. If you haven't been fired, you haven't been in radio, but you know, th that is where the opportunities are. And you can't take those moments as failure. You, you have to take them as an opportunity to find out what's down this road. And in, and throughout my life that has worked out so well when, when the, the bumps came, the potholes and, you know, I wound up on a road different from the one I expected to be on. And it, it, it's all turned out great. I think partly because I allowed it to, you know, we, we have to adapt to what life throws us. And yeah, I, th I think, I think that's the case. Um, like for example, when you're planning, if you look at it from the perspective of planning a military campaign, you can come up with all of the plans, contingencies, strategies, troop movement diagrams, and what have you, and all that goes out the window the moment somebody fires the first shot. Absolutely. It's very similar to getting a startup to revenue. Part of my work um, in my private consulting is working with startups to get them to revenue. The answer to the question is so breathtakingly simple the value that I add is it's a, it's a bespoke situation in each case. And a lot of it has to do with working with my clients on getting their mindsets headed in this direction. But do you know the fastest way to get a startup moving is to get somebody to pay you for something and deliver it? Yes. What immediately right. goes out the window are the endless meetings about meetings where you go over the same PowerPoint with the same five-year strategic plan over and over and over again. Meanwhile, you haven't earned a dime. You haven't made an offer. Go out there and get paid for something that resembles what you want the startup to do, even if it's not the exact product, as long as it's in the industry and as long as it's within the wheelhouse you want to be recognized for. Do it and do it well. And you will find the moment you're getting paid to do something, all the meetings about meetings, the plan meetings about meetings goes out the window. I saw yes. this myself with one of the very first startups I moved into revenue where I guided them to team up. I guided my client to team up with her mentor to deliver a paid class where her mentor would present it. And she would market it to her list. And she'd done a nice job building up a mailing list, a very responsive mailing list, by the way. So he presented it. She sold it is how, is how it worked. And the moment that ka-ching happened on her shopping cart for the very first time, well, all the focus shifted to, okay, that's one. Our goal is 20. Let's get these other 19. Then there's a the logistics of, let's make sure they all get their links. Let's make sure they get their materials. Let's make sure that the presenter is going to be on time, that, uh, that we have everything we need from him. He has everything he needs from us. And in the midst of all this action, she suggested that uh, we get together for a one-day retreat. And within three minutes, every single person on the team said, sorry, no can do. We got to get this program up. 
Mm-hmm. That's great. And, sen- and since then, in the trajectory of that, it's just been one revenue event to another. And what's been interesting in that journey is everything that she thought that her company was going to be and ended up not being. Right. And everything that she hadn't anticipated as far as where that business was going to go were the points that bring in money. Right. And the part of that story that I really keyed in on was when you said, get something out in the market, even if it's not exactly what you plan to do, something to that effect, because the the market will tell you what it needs to be 10 times better and faster than all the meetings and PowerPoints and more meetings in the world. That's so important. Yeah. uh, When the bug hit two years ago uh, and physical stages disappeared, networking disappeared and the physical sense what have you podcasting took on yet another of its nine lives yes and so people were entering the launch your podcast market and i entered the market because i had experience launching podcasts and i created what's known as the podcast reach system so how did i create it i uh, developed a training series for it that was as much for me as for my potential clients and uh I sold some copies of the course. It did okay. But what I was really finding that people wanted, they just wanted their damn podcast launched. And the types of clients that I wanted to deal with were not the ones who were going to say, oh, I'll just put it up on Anchor and look at me, I have a podcast. They wanted their new media portal. They wanted to do their branding. They wanted to create avatars. They wanted to um, have nice graphics. They wanted to have specific show design. They wanted to really, really get in-depth with building a podcast to serve as your key networking client and attraction celebrity expert branding tool. So I started to get those types of leads and I just decided without you know, putting up web pages or anything, I said, okay, I, I said to somebody, it's like, cool, uh, I'll do this for $5,000 and they paid me. Then I went to somebody else. It's like, okay, so you want to get this podcast running? Cool, that'll be $5,000. They paid me. Then I de- then I developed the elite package, right? <laughs> and 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 I and I and I did it as a pilot, and I even told those folks that for what I was delivering, I would probably actually charge somewhere in the neighborhood of eight or nine thousand dollars. And I told them up front that I'm an expert in this. I showed them podcasts I'd launched that uh, were delivering results for clients already. But I said this is a but, yeah, but I said you guys are the pilot program, so. I look forward to hearing from you on where the gaps may be so that I can fill them and I will fill those gaps for you. And we'll make this an amazing experience. And the people in the pilot program are doing great with their shows right now. That's great. But I was open, but see, I was open to that. I was open to the idea that I could create something that made a really nice offer that would speak to a particular audience and attract a certain audience. And, um, and what was, and was, perfect about that is I didn't allow myself to be held back by making sure that everything about podcast reach was exactly perfect. It wasn't until my fourth client that I developed an internal checklist on how to do it. Yeah. Perfect is the enemy of progress, right? So we we can't wait till everything's right. You have to, you have to act. Most successful thing I've ever done. And the one I plan the least. Yep. That's great. Yeah. So as we wrap up here um, and this may be a summary or this may be something new, uh, the final thing I wanted to ask before I extend to my audience the invitation you have for us is, overall, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are just starting out? And when you think about it, when you're starting out as an entrepreneur, you are in some ways becoming a leader by accident. Whatever you thought being an entrepreneur was, it's going to be something different and you will be a leader. Yeah, 100%. And the advice I have is don't try to go it alone. I mean, part, part of it really, we just, you just talked about, and that is the, don't be so married to your idea, you know, that you won't let the market adjust it in ways that make it better. But really, I think it's so important for entrepreneurs to seek out the the help that's there. And people are so helpful and so giving, you know, when, when I, you know, lost my job 10 years ago and had this idea of starting a, you know, a marketing consultancy, I, I reached out to everybody in my contact list pretty much and said, Hey, could we have a coffee? I have an idea and I just want to see what you think of it. And some of those meetings were extremely unproductive. Most of them were great. Uh, Everybody was supportive. 
you know, I got, gave me good ideas about how to go about things. One uh, friend who runs a small agency actually gave me copies of his agreements and some of his other paperwork. So I wouldn't have to start all that from scratch. You know, people were just so incredibly generous with their time. And then having launched, it just so happens that that was the moment where I, I met now my dear friend, but the guy who runs these business, we're called Insight in Baltimore, these business peer group meetings. And I joined a business peer group. And in the early days, especially, I mean, I got great help and advice when we sit around this conference room table for three hours, one morning a month. I got great advice. But in the early days of being a consultant, to realize that I could offer advice and that it was well received was a big confidence booster that, that helped me think, you know, maybe I, maybe I can do this. And it's just you know, when, when you go, especially if you're a solo entrepreneur, you know, you, you lose that office tribe, right? You know, the, yeah. the social part of it and the just sort of being able to bounce ideas off of people. And you have to replace that in some way, shape or form. And and then you take in just one more quick sidebar here, but this comes up all the time in peer group meetings, this sort of fear of or dislike of networking events, right? I'm not good at those. I'm not good at small talk. And, and believe me, I'm, I'm not good at small talk either. I, I, yeah. I've gotten better at it, but you, you have to do those things. You have to get out there and, and let people know who you are and what you're doing and, and find out and give as much or more as you get, you know, find out who their ideal client is and see if you can make introductions for them. And the more you do that, and the more you can make it a two-way street and just be seen and get to know people and build your, your circles, the, the better and the faster you will get to where you want to go. That is fantastic advice. And, you know, I, myself, I'm so far to the left on the introvert scale that they had to create a new category just for me. This whole idea of, <laughs> networking. That's actually, that's actually one of the reasons that I got into launching podcasts, because uh, I'll tell you the story real quick. I went through a period in my entrepreneurial journey for like three years. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I looked to the future <laughs> and I saw a blank screen, but I had one thing going for me. It's this show, the business creators radio show every week, a new episode. That's 52 new conversations a year, 52 new opportunities. Yep. So I got, I, I even got the opportunity to to take on projects without officially announcing that I was in certain businesses just to see how I liked it. Yes. And it also gave me a touch point with my audience every week to keep them engaged. And it was my, cause I didn't want to go out to networking meetings when I didn't know what I wanted to promote. It was my networking tool, which is why I cater and with podcast reach to the type of entrepreneur who is primarily concerned with using their podcast as their key networking client attraction Celebrity Expert Branding to I have two podcasts, this one, and then I have one called the Brilliance Plus Passion Project, which are 15-minute episodes where everybody answers the same 10 questions, and they're really showpieces uh, for the guests to share and say, hey, this is another place where I was uh, featured, and I ask them some interesting questions that bring out a bit of their quirky personalities and give their audiences a chance to see them as real people. That's the gift I give them, and what it gives me is the opportunity to bang through a lot more episodes and meet a lot more people. Because fake conversations and direct messages, uh, working chat rooms and webinars, going to networking meetings, uh, making friends at physical seminars uh, before the final day. Uh, no. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, I I feel you. And, uh, you know, I I have always said, you know, obviously I I come out of radio, so I'm comfortable, you know, speaking to groups and that kind of thing. And I've always said I'd rather be on a stage with 200, 500 people than standing at a networking thing with two people. I don't know, right? Because it's, it's harder for me, but I've gotten better at it, you know, and the more you can make it about the other person, the easier it goes. But then back to you and your, your podcast, you know, and the variety that you see in those 52 episodes a year, it, I imagine it's very similar for me where, you know, my, my, one of my very favorite things about what I do is these initial discussions with clients where I get to learn about their business and maybe, maybe their industry that I didn't even know was a thing, right. Until they called me and learn how it works and then try to figure out what they know and translate it into something that will make sense to somebody who lands on their website and, and doesn't know, 
you know, and, and what, what are the things that are going to bring customers in? What are your real, and over and over again, you'll see it happen where they go, well, you know, the, the three most important things in our business are X, Y, and Z. And they'll tell me this across the desk and I'll go, okay, well, none of that's on the homepage of your website. So maybe we can fix that for a start, you know, that kind of thing. But the, the learning, the discovery process of all that is, is so much fun for me. And I'm sure it is for you too, when you do this. It absolutely is. So here's the invitation I want to extend to our listeners. Uh, you have heard that Jim Rafferty is the author of a book called Leader by Accident, Lessons in Leadership, Loss, and Life. It's uh, created by Morgan James Publishing, which is a premier publishing house. Go get your copy. Uh, you can find it at www.leaderbyaccident.com. It's the name of the book, www.leaderbyaccident.com. It's available on pretty much every online retailer that you can possibly think of. And just one of the testimonials that this book has gotten is from none other than Robert M. Gates, who served both Barack Obama and George W. Bush as Secretary of Defense, and then went on to become National President of the Boy Scouts of America from 2014 to 2016. And among other things, Mr. Gates says, it's a very rare book that packs so much wisdom and wit about leadership and life into so few pages, I couldn't put it down. So www.leaderbyaccident.com. And if you want to discover more about Jim's services, go to W, uh, well, there's no WWW here, but uh, just go to either J. Way. Oh, it works either way. Cool. So you have the little plug-in. That's perfect. So it's um, J-M-R, it's his initials, J-M-R-K-E-T-I-N-G.com. Yes, yeah, so you pronounced Marketing. it right. right At the very beginning, you pronounced it correctly. J-M Marketing is correct. JM marketing, uh, JMR marketing or, or J marketing or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, so, it, yeah. It all works. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. It'll, it'll get you there. Just look in the show notes. If you're on our website, and you'll see it. All right. So Jim Rafferty, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me an education. Thank you, Adam. My pleasure. I appreciate the chance to chat with you. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the business creators radio show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.